neighbor. You are listening to the New Garden Church podcast. We're glad you're here. This year, we are walking through the whole Bible together as a church family, day by day and week by week. We're meeting online right now, but we normally meet at 10 a.m. at DuPont Tyler Middle School in Hermitage, Tennessee. You can catch our weekly gatherings live by checking out our website at www.newgarden.church online. We would love to hear from you. This week, Jeff provided a message from Isaiah outlining how the words of Isaiah were pointing towards the coming of Jesus. We hope that you enjoy what you hear today and check back in with us again soon. Good morning and welcome to week 18 of our series, Long Story Short. We are taking a year to read through the entire Bible and we finished the first third, one third down, two thirds to go. Now, if you haven't been reading with us so far, why not start today? For those of us who have been following along, I hear great things. Like, I'm so glad we're doing this. I'm seeing and reading things that I've never noticed before. The Bible is coming alive. But for it to come alive, you actually have to spend time reading it. To know God more fully, you have to spend time with Him. And that is our goal this year. So here is your invitation once again to join us on this journey. You can go to our website, newgarden.church 2021. Download the reading plan. Get the book outlines, join the Facebook group, start interacting with us as we interact with God's words. You won't regret it. Now, for those of us who have been reading along, we are entering new territory, the latter prophets. In the Tanakh order that we've been reading, the former prophets include Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. And the former prophets are a bit easier to follow because they include mostly narrative. But we're about to start the latter prophets, specifically Isaiah today. And I think it's important we take a minute and just talk about how to read the prophets. The prophets are a large portion of the Hebrew Bible. Uh, The major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, they're called the major prophets just because they wrote such big books. In fact, Jeremiah is the longest book in the whole Bible. And then there are the minor prophets, which are lumped into one scroll called the Twelve. And all of these books are hard to read. There's not a linear narrative to follow, like a storyline, the way that we would communicate. And it's hard to follow. Uh, Even the great reformer and Bible nerd Martin Luther has this famous quote about the prophets. He said, the prophets have an odd way of talking. Like people who, instead of proceeding in an orderly manner, ramble off from one thing to the next that you cannot make head or tell of them or see what they're getting at. Right? And that's Martin Luther saying that. They're written mainly in ancient Hebrew poetry, and they talk about ancient civilizations and ancient kings with weird names, and they expect you're very familiar with the story of the Bible so far. So perhaps you've avoided reading the prophets. They take some time to dissect. In fact, Their contemporaries didn't really want to listen to them either. These books were composed as a representation of the message of the minority voice in Israel before the exile. These figures, these prophets, for the most part, were not listened to. It was precisely after all of their warnings came true that the interest surged in what these figures were and what they wrote and what they said. But the prophets were right. They knew what was going to happen to Israel. And this leads us to a common misconception of the role of the prophets. That the prophets are merely future predictors. That's a part of what they do. However, that's not what the word prophecy means in the Bible, nor is that the primary role of the prophets in the Bible. Future prediction is something that some prophets do sometimes, but is not near the heart of the core of the biblical definition of prophecy. So what's the main role of the prophets? Well, 
Nobody explains things better than the crew at the Bible Project. So let's watch a short video about how to read the prophets, and that will help set the stage for our walk through Isaiah the next two weeks and the next few weeks as we go through the rest of the prophets. Let's watch this. Ezekiel, Obadiah, Habakkuk. What do these names have in common? Well, they're three of the 15 prophets that have their own books in the Bible. And if you've tried to read these books, odds are you got lost in their dense poetry and strange imagery. But these books are super important for understanding the overall biblical story. So let's talk about how to read the prophets. When I hear the word prophet, I think of a fortune teller, someone who predicts the future. That's what being a prophet means in many cultures, but not in the Bible. While the biblical prophets sometimes speak about the future, they're way more than fortune tellers. How should I think about them? Well, they were Israelites who had a radical encounter with God's presence and then were commissioned to go and speak on God's behalf. Like a representative. Right. And the thing that they cared about the most is the mutual partnership that existed between God and the Israelites. Right. The partnership. God rescued Israel from slavery in Egypt and invited them to become a nation of justice and generosity that would represent his character to the nations. And so this partnership required all Israelites to give their trust and allegiance to their God alone. In the Bible, this partnership's called the covenant. But the leaders, the priests, the kings led Israel astray and they broke the covenant. And so this is where the prophets came in, to remind Israel of their role in the partnership. And they did this in three ways. First, they were constantly accusing Israel for violating the terms of the covenant. The charges usually include idolatry, alliances with other nations and their gods, and allowing injustice towards the poor. Ah, so like covenant lawyers. Right. And so second, the prophets called the Israelites to repent, which means simply to turn around. They spoke of God's mercy to forgive them if they would just confess and change their ways. But Israel and its leaders didn't change. Things went from bad to worse. And so that brings us to the third way the prophets emphasized the covenant. They announced the consequences for breaking it, which they called the day of the Lord. Oh yeah, the apocalypse, visions of the end of the world. Well, sort of. The prophets were mostly interested in how God would bring his justice on Israel's corruption and on the violent nations around them. And while explaining these local events, they often used cosmic imagery. Cosmic imagery? Yeah, like Jeremiah. He described the exile of the Israelites to Babylon as the undoing of creation itself. The land dissolves into chaos and disorder, no light, no animals or people. Or Isaiah described the downfall of Babylon as the disintegration of the cosmos, stars falling from the sky, the sun going dark. For the prophets, when God acts in human history to bring justice, it's a day of the Lord. So the prophets aren't talking about the end of the world. Well, hold on. They're doing many things at once. The cosmic imagery shows how these important events of their day fit into the bigger story of God's mission to bring down every corrupt and violent nation once and for all. The prophets cared about the present and the future, and the cosmic imagery allowed them to talk about both at the same time. Got it. So no matter when you live, the day of the Lord's bad news if you're part of Babylon. But it's good news if you're waiting for God's kingdom. The day of the Lord pointed to the return of the exiles to Jerusalem. And once again, the prophets use cosmic poetry to describe it. They see a new Jerusalem, like a new Garden of Eden, with all humanity living at peace with each other and with the animals. And there's a new messianic king who restores God's kingdom in a renewed creation. Beautiful. So those are the three themes in the prophets. 
These prophets must have been very powerful, persuasive speakers. Well, some were, but others lived on the margins. They would often perform strange symbolic stunts in public to communicate their message. Like when Ezekiel lay in the dirt and built a model of Jerusalem being attacked by Babylon. Or when Isaiah walked around naked for three years as a symbol of the humiliation of exile. So do people pay attention to them? Not really. The stories in these books show how the prophets were a minority group mostly shunned by Israel's leaders. And their writings were a kind of resistance literature. Most people ignored them, that is, until their warnings came true in the Babylonian exile. And after that, people began to take their words seriously. Yes. The works of these earlier prophets were inherited by later unnamed prophets who studied these texts intensely. They're the ones who arrange the Hebrew scriptures as we know them, including the books of the prophets. Okay. And there's 15 books of the prophets. The big three are Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. And then there's a collection of 12 smaller prophetic works unified on a single scroll. And in each of these books, you'll read stories about the prophets and their poems and visions, all arranged to show the cosmic meaning of Israel's history. How God would turn their tragic story of failure and exile into a story of hope and restoration for all nations. And it's that twin message of prophetic warning and of hope that the prophets cared about so much. And it's a message that we still need to hear today. So reading the books of the biblical prophets is challenging. Like they're written again in ancient Hebrew poetry and narrative, which is really different from our modern poetry or narrative. Also, these books assume that you have a fairly good understanding of the final two centuries that leads up to the tragic end of the Israelite kingdom. Now, if you've been following along with our reading plan, we have read from Genesis all the way through 2 Kings. And so you have an advantage because you can hopefully place the biblical prophets into the story that you just finished reading. 2 Kings 17 through 25 narrated the downfall of the northern kingdom of Israel to the Assyrians in 722 BC, followed by the demise of the southern kingdom of Judah to the Babylonians in 586 BC. And as you turn to the book of Isaiah, the introduction in verse 1 explicitly time warps you back 150 years to the decade before the Assyrian invasion of the northern kingdom. This is what it says. The vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amoz, saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So Isaiah lives in Jerusalem in the southern Judah area, and he can see the gathering Assyrian storm on the horizon. He's convinced that the northern kingdom of Israel is done for, but he still has hope that things could turn out differently for Judah and the family of David ruling in Jerusalem. Now, a quick summary of the backstory that Isaiah assumes you know. Think about the story of Genesis 12 and onward, how God chose Abraham after the scattering at the Tower of Babylon, and he promised to make Abraham into a large nation that would mediate divine blessing to all the nations. And that promise got developed as Abraham's family grew, ended up in slavery in Egypt, and then were rescued out of slavery and brought to the foot of Mount Sinai in Exodus. There at the mountain, God asked the Israelites to obey all the terms of the covenant so they could be God's priestly representatives to all nations. However, as the story went on, we watched the family of Abraham fail at every task. Like remember the book of Judges, talk about some messed up people. But God raised up David, 
a royal leader who would be faithful on behalf of the unfaithful people. Yet even this leader had his failures, the public ones being adultery and murder. So God promised that the ideal leader for Israel would come in the future from David's line. And the key story was 2 Samuel chapter 7, where God promised that a faithful king would arise and lead Israel towards faithfulness. This king would rule over the nations forever and ever. Now, David himself was not that king. And as you keep reading, you find out neither was his son Solomon, nor were any of his descendants for that matter. Because of this, when we open the book of Isaiah, we're anticipating this promised king from the line of David who will fulfill the ancient promises of God to Abraham, Israel, and David. And Isaiah does not disappoint. One of the main themes of this book is the future hope of this anticipated king. In the opening chapter, we learn that the Davidic rulers in Jerusalem have become murderers and thieves, but God is going to do something about it. He will purify Israel with a coming act of divine justice, and only the repentant will be redeemed. Isaiah chapter 1, see how the faithful city has become a prostitute. She once was full of justice, righteousness used to dwell in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross. Your choice wine is diluted with water. Your rulers are rebels, partners with thieves. They all love bribes and chase after gifts. They do not defend the cause of the fatherless. The widow's case does not come before them. Therefore, the Lord, Yahweh Almighty, the mighty one of Israel declares, Ah, I will vent my wrath on my foes and avenge myself on my enemies. I will turn my hand against you. I will thoroughly purge away your dross and remove all your impurities. I will restore your leaders as in the days of old, your rulers as at the beginning. Afterward, you will be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. And since it's poetry, you can see how Isaiah is beautifully weaving the words of the Lord together like a painting that mirrors itself, the message of judgment set against the message of hope. Now this judgment he refers to is the Assyrian Empire gathering just over the horizon, taking out Israelite cities everywhere. But he trusted God's ancient promise to David. He knew that this act of judgment would not be God's final word. Isaiah's hope for a future ruler is introduced in the opening chapter. I will restore your rulers as in the beginning, and you, Jerusalem, will be called city of righteousness, the faithful city. God allows the southern kingdom and the family of David to go through the fire and come out the other side purged and faithful. The ultimate goal isn't just to glorify Israel. The poem in Isaiah chapter 2 shows that when God restores Jerusalem and the family of Abraham, all people will be drawn to the kingdom of God, resulting in peace among all the nations. This is what Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of Yahweh's temple will be established. As the highest of the mountains, it will be exalted above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of Yahweh, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of Yahweh from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of Yahweh. The storyline in Isaiah chapters 1 and 2 goes something like this. Israel's sin is going to lead to some sort of divine justice. In this case, Assyria. 
That will lead to the restoration of Israel with a new king, and that will ultimately lead to peace on earth. The rest of the book of Isaiah picks up and develops this storyline, introducing new twists along the way. So if you can grasp this basic storyline, you've got the main idea. Now the poems and narratives to follow in chapters 3 through 11 show how Assyria came to town and ruined much of the southern kingdom. Isaiah confronted one Davidic king, Ahaz, in chapter 7, who ended up being as faithless as his ancestors. And so Isaiah looked forward to a king who would be like David and have this radical faith to save Israel from the Assyrian threat. And this is the king described in the famous poem in Isaiah chapter 9. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressors. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. And the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Now, this is quite a king, and he's given some extremely exalted titles, Mighty God, Eternal Father, famously Prince of Peace. When this king arrives, he will be the embodiment of the power and presence of the God of Israel, and he will bring about the fulfillment of God's promise to David. Now, as you read on, you realize that for Isaiah, this coming king will not just provide a solution to the immediate threat of the Assyrians, but his arrival will bring about a renewal of creation itself. The poem in Isaiah 11 paints a fuller picture of this king. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of Yahweh will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding. The spirit of counsel and of might. The spirit of the knowledge and fear of Yahweh. And he will delight in the fear of Yahweh. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and the breath of his lips will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt, and faithfulness the sash around his waist. The wolf will lie down with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like an ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of Yahweh as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his resting place will be glorious." 
Now the king is described as the shoot from the stump of Jesse. Jesse was King David's father, and it was David's family who was threatened by Assyria and would later be taken captive to Babylon, effectively cutting off hope for the future. Still, no matter how bad things get, God promises that a new David will grow out of Jesse's family line. And this king is amazing. He is endowed with the sevenfold spirit of God, which empowers him to rule Israel and all nations and bring about perfect justice. Not only that, but creation itself will undergo a transformation. This is poetically depicted by showing the most violent of creatures of their imaginations, lions and bears and wolves and cobras, playing and snuggling with the weakest and most vulnerable creatures they could think of, lambs and calves and baby humans. And the king who brings about this transformation will become a rallying point for all of the nations. Now with all of this hope, we venture into the rest of Isaiah looking for the identity of this king. Who will it be? Well, the next Davidic king we meet is named Hezekiah, whose story we read about near the end of 2 Kings, but it's replayed here in Isaiah chapters 36 through 39, and he is legit. He's the king ruling Jerusalem when the Assyrian war machine arrives, and his response is the very opposite of his father Ahaz, whose failure we learned about in Isaiah 7. Hezekiah heads right into the temple and prays that God would deliver him, and that's exactly what happens. That night, the angel of Yahweh comes through the Assyrian camp outside the city and puts 185,000 soldiers to death, and Hezekiah wakes up and finds that the Assyrian army not only is dead, but those who are alive have retreated, the king of Assyria leading the way. And we're left thinking to ourselves, all right, this Hezekiah, he's the real deal. Surely he's the prince of peace, the shoot from the stump of Jesse. But then... As always in the Bible, the following story throws a wrench in this positive depiction of Hezekiah. Chapter 39 tells a story about a group of Babylonian ambassadors who arrive in Jerusalem to like court Hezekiah. Now, out of context, this story is a little confusing, but you're supposed to recall 2 Kings 18 through 25 that the Babylonians, Assyria's neighbors, were secretly plotting to topple the Assyrian Empire. They're going around trying to form alliances to pull this coup off, and they arrive in Jerusalem, and Hezekiah is so flattered. He shows them all of his treasury and resources, which is a heartbreaking realization because earlier, at the moment of crisis, he relied upon the God of Israel. But now, once a better political option shows up, Hezekiah crumbles. The possibility of having the Babylonian military firepower in his pocket was more attractive than going through another Assyrian crisis on his knees in prayer. Isaiah confronts Hezekiah and tells him that there will be serious consequences for this act. These Babylonians he wants to ally with are going to turn on him in just a few generations, and Babylon will actually become Jerusalem's destroyer. Hezekiah's royal descendants will be taken captive and hauled off to exile. And because you just finished reading the story of 2 Kings, you know that Isaiah's warning does come true. That's the first act of Isaiah, chapters 1 through 39, and that's how they come to a close. Now we had all of our hopes worked up. We thought Hezekiah was the promised king, and then he failed, just like David and Solomon and the rest. Those divine promises of a future king from earlier in the book are left hanging open and unfulfilled. However, as we turn to the next main movement of the book, chapters 40 through 66, these chapters will pick up this thread and develop it more in a surprising direction, which we're going to talk about next week. But for the moment, let's conclude by observing the nature of messianic prophecy in Isaiah 1 through 39. The author of Isaiah wants us to see that the hope for a faithful king who would bring the kingdom of God has deep roots going all the way back to David. And it appears that this promise stood as a potential reality for each generation of David's descendants. But one by one, they all struck out. Hezekiah came close, 
But in the end, even he was disqualified by his selfishness and sin. And the future promise keeps getting delayed and kicked out into the distant future. And this is a very different conception of messianic prophecy than the popular conception of the prophets who like looked into a crystal ball and predicted events far removed from their own day. That isn't how the biblical prophets worked. Rather, they looked to God's promises in the past, to Abraham and to David, to generate a hope for the, their own day and beyond. The prophets believed that God's covenant promises called every generation of Israel and its kings to repentance and faithfulness. But as the story turns out, none of David's descendants lived up to this call. And then the exile happened. This is how the promise of the Messiah became a hope for the distant future once the kingdom of David was hauled off to Babylon. That was the story Jesus was born into. The basic claim of the four gospel stories in the New Testament is that Jesus was that faithful king from the line of David. He was the one to whom this entire story has been pointing all along. Not because of Isaiah's predictive prophecy, but because Jesus arrived and began doing things that made people realize this man is doing all the things God promised to David and to Abraham. Those ancient poems and prophetic stories created this giant help-wanted, Messiah-needed sign. And Jesus arrived not just to apply for the job, but to do it successfully. But how Jesus fulfilled these ancient promises also surprised many people. And that will be the focus of our exploration in chapters 40 through 66 next week. So for now, let's remember our Messiah as Madeline leads us to the table. That's it for this time. Thanks for checking in with us, and we'll be back with another episode next week.